to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knabor Larsen and Håkon Steine. Each episode of Percussion Perspectives features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. Matthew Teodori founded Line Up and Line Percussion in 2009 together with his colleagues Colin Falk and Adam Bedell. Over the past 10 years, this Austin-based trio has built an artistic profile which, combining elements from performance, instrumental theater, do-it-yourself technology and sound research, instrumental virtuosity and multimedia, is truly unique. In this episode, Matthew gives an insight into how Lineup Online is organized. Furthermore, he talks about the transition from being a student to creating and running a professional ensemble, about the process of writing grants, about how they work with composers to develop and design a new repertoire that is daring and experimental in nature, yet in line with their aesthetic and sociological vision. It all started with drum set. That's that's all I wanted to do. Despite my dad's love of classical music, and you know, um, my mom was was like, "Well, when you want to do something, you study it." So I took drum set lessons and learned to read. Um, but I went to a very small school, so like there wasn't a band program. I grew up in Virginia, and, and it's you know I'm in Texas now, and the thought of not being in band in middle school is like no one, no one does that. <laughs> but in Virginia, it wasn't so much of a thing. And um, so it was just all like private drum set. And mm. when it came time to go to college, I still hadn't really played mallets at all. Like I, I, mm. I was learning to read, but I was a real, uh, I, I was very late on, like, because I didn't have that, like sort of traditional mm. music in school upbringing. Mm. Mm. And uh, so, <laughs> so I kind of like learned to read for college audition, which mm. is very like a very similar situation that my, my bandmate Adam had. Mm-hmm. Whereas Cullen, my bandmate was like from Texas, like winning chamber music competitions in high school, you know, to play at PASIC and things like that. And um, Adam and I were like, Oh, uh, we have to do this to get into music school. Okay, we'll learn. <laughs> so, like, auditioned for like a very small school in New York and got in, and and it was like whole like that first year of undergrad was just like, what is happening? But <laughs> I loved it. Like, I I loved the challenge of it, and I was very like hardcore, hmm. like, oh, I'm so bad. I have so <laughs> far to go, and I kind of like a somewhat insurmountable challenge. So Mm. it was like, okay, let's, um, 
let's get better at this as fast as we can. Mm. And then when it came time to go to graduate school, I kind of wanted to go to a, like a more of a well-rounded school, which University of Texas was uh, and is. And you can, you know, there's an orchestral guy here, but there's a, um, you know, the, the main professor is like kind of, I guess, known as a marimbus Tom Burrett, but he's very, very open-minded to everything. And so um, I had been really heavy into orchestral and undergrad. Both my teachers were orchestral players and I, and uh, that was it for me. And I just, I don't know. I, I, I guess I came to grad school really wanting to do the orchestral thing, but I thought it might be good to have the open-minded, like broad mm-hmm. go program <laughs> just in case I like found something else that I wanted to do. And yeah, it was exactly that because just a couple months into undergrad or sorry, into my master's degree, um, I kind of discovered the whole chamber music thing. There wasn't so much of that because my undergrad school was small. We did percussion ensemble, but it wasn't a focus. And my teacher was an orchestral player. So that's what I was into. And then when I got here, it was like, oh, wait, you can, uh, you know, make music with your friends and uh, you can work with composers on new things and I think I was getting increasingly frustrated with the orchestral stuff that all these questions that I had that for the composers were, you couldn't ask them, you know, they had yeah. passed on. And so it was like, you know, everyone would tell you how you needed to do something um, or that, you know, the right way to do it. And I just kept thinking like, you know, if this composer had talked to someone that knew what they were doing, like this probably wouldn't be this hard or it might yeah. be better or it just like there was a disconnect in my head so the fact that i could talk to a composer and work with them on something and have it be um an interactive experience was like from that moment on there was no going back (laughs) so that was like 2008 and then i met adam and cullen uh cullen was at ut when i got there Uh, Adam came the year after I came. And so in 2009, we started talking about um, commissioning a couple things and trying to play some concerts together. And the early days of Line Upon Line were more, um, it was more of a collective. Like there were a lot, lot of people and we would just pick people to play certain things. But over time, you know, different people didn't, you know, there was too much work or, you know, they were busy with other things. And so it just kind of like people just kind of kept peeling off. Yeah. And then at the end, it was just like Adam Cullen and I, and we were like, well, do you want to like give this a go? And everyone was, was committed. And so it was like, all right, well, let's see if we can make this something. So that's, that's kind of the abbreviated history. So uh, you graduated, you had a bag of sticks in Austin, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> what happened then? How did you establish uh, all the practical stuff, instruments, um, rehearsal space, technology? Yeah, yeah, this is important. So, um, so the group got going when we were all still students and we would rehearse uh, early in the morning, like at UT, so the, the, the percussion ensemble room or the rehearsal room at UT is like very busy room. Mm-hmm. 
And it's like lessons are taught there. It's like, like your studio in Freiburg. Like you can't just walk in anytime and do what you want. So we would get up super early and like, I don't know, I, I've probably glorified it in my head. I mean, I know we were rehearsing by 7 a.m., but some mornings I want to say it was even earlier. Wow. And, you know, which is like when you're in college or grad school, it's not like your normal schedule. No. <laughs> so we felt like we were, it was like one of those hardcore things like, are you, do you want to do this? Like, let's get up yeah. early and do this thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that was kind of fun. But at some point, our professor was like, hey, you know, like if you want to figure out how to do this, like you're going to need to find somewhere else to rehearse. And that was a very like kind of loving parental it's time for you to leave the house sort of thing. Yeah. And so we just got in touch with a local school that let us rehearse there um, for free. And we kept all, like we had very few things, some personal instruments, but we were able to store them there. And then I think when they agreed to that, they didn't really realize how much we were going to uh, be there rehearsing. Like, I think they thought they might see us once a month or something, but still to this day, we rehearse Monday, Tuesday, Thursday for three hours a day. So it's like, we have nine hours a week of rehearsal and that's, that's what it was in the evenings then, but, but it was same schedule and they just, it was just too much. Like, I think they just, we were in the way there. <laughs> and at that point, this is a couple of years in, we had enough money where we could get our own space mm. and, or, or sorry, we could rent a, a space mm. uh, of a warehouse from this um, woodworker. And, and there was no climate control. It was just like a building uh, where this guy made cabinets. So all of our stuff was like, it was getting super hot and super yeah. cold and, and there was sawdust on stuff. Yeah. It was bad. So we, <laughs> But we could afford it. And it felt so nice. That was the first time in our lives where we didn't have to tear down our setup every night when we were done, you know, because it was our corner of this, this room. And right. When, when you say uh, you had enough money, is that from pure gigging or was it some kind of local financial support from, from the city or whatever? It was, it was both. We, you know, we had started making money from playing very small amounts of money, but like basically from the very beginning, I think it was important to us not to ever like give ourselves away. And, mm. you know, we might be talking about a couple hundred dollars and I'm not saying we didn't do things for free because that, that for sure happened. But I think we had this mindset of, if you don't get paid to do this, then it's just a hobby. Mm. And we all know that pretty much everyone does their hobby less than their work. And um, unless you're independently wealthy or something, you know, you yeah. only need to work a couple hours. We, we knew we needed to, for it to be something that our, our wives, our partners were, were willing, uh, for us to do, it needed to make money. And, you know, the first bits of that money went to having a space. We weren't making a lot of money mm -hmm. at that time, but, um, we were able to, every time we played a gig, we made a little bit. And mm. that was what was really important to us. It, mm. it didn't matter like necessarily how much it was so much as you worked, you got paid to do it after the right. band paid for its expenses. And then a couple years in, once you have enough of a track record, there's different um, uh, granting organizations in the U S and, and basically everywhere, I guess, or every country has their own system, but mm. 
um, you have to have a track record first. Uh, mm. the, you know, you can't just like day one say, I want to do this thing. You have to, they, they all have different requirements, but it's normally something like one, two or three years. You have to have been doing something and it doesn't have to be big and fancy. It's just like, you can point to, we've played this many concerts, um, you know, we're an entity, we're an official business, we're a, a government uh, approved nonprofit organization. Therefore, we can receive funding. And that starts very small. And then kind of each year you're in it and they see, okay, this isn't just a flash in the pan. You get a little bit more and, and that just grows as your budget grows. But um yeah, I mean, all of it was very incremental and you're learning how to do everything for the first time. And so you're making all sorts of mistakes and right. uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, no one ever taught me how to write a grant in school. I mean, I just learned how to play drums sort of. Right. Yeah. Was there nothing about entrepreneurship in school? There is now. There is yeah. now. And, you know, to be perfectly fair, Hakan, like there might have been classes like when we were in school about music business or th there probably was. And I just, I, I, it wasn't a requirement for my degree. Right. So I was just like, well, I'm just going to work on drumming Chops. and then I'll yeah, learn yeah, the rest yeah. of that yeah. down the road. In but real life. Yeah. I don't think I, I don't think, I think now if you knew you were interested in that at UT, like there are courses on mm. entrepreneurship and things mm -hmm. like that, but I guess that's the hardest. Uh, like thing. Yeah, that's the kind of a hard experience for most musicians. Going just that moment where you go out of school, um, to use this silly metaphor again, with, with your plastic bag of sticks, and you realize uh, I have basically no structure around me. So when you that's the kind of when you get the hands dirty, right, and just start working yourself up again. I think most people struggle with that uh, at least half a year or something until something comes their way <clears throat> and uh yeah it's, it's, half a year seems pretty quick I yeah would love it yeah I, I feel yeah. like i still struggle at times because like this month for example in the next four weeks i have seven grants due right and it's like you know just or how do i uh first of all <laughs> you know balance the playing with the the admin side of yeah. things yeah because at, at the beginning, it's just all, I felt like school was so much like, how do you sound? How do you sound? How do you sound? And at some point you realize no one cares how I sound if I no. can't afford to like get, get to a place where someone can hear me. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, just the time management of, of learning your notes and then doing the admin is, that was a big learning curve. And still to this day, I mean, I have some structure in place now, but. Did you get any kind of... Um uh coaching in this uh application writing or any kind of did you did you go out and ask for a meeting and to present yourself or like in in person or what kind of st uh, strategy did you have I, I wish i could say i was that organized i think i just i remember really early meeting with adam and colin where i was like did either of you guys want to do this like None of us were excited about the grant writing thing. And then they were like, I think I got, I don't know if I got voted in. I just, no one wanted to do it. So I was like, okay, I mean, this is important. I'll, I'll learn. But you know, what's funny is about some of the grants, you're successful the first time you, you write it, you get money. And then every time after that, you, you don't get it. 
You know, it's like almost like, what did I do right the first time I ever applied to this that I haven't done right since? Mm. And then some grants I've been trying for the entire 11 years of the group and I still haven't gotten, you know, and it's like, so it's both. And and some of them you get every year, you know, like Mm. you you apply every year, you get every year. And so there's so many lessons to learn of, of being persistent and trying to adapt and do your best. And obviously the panels on these grants change all the time. So Mm. It could be that I'm not doing anything really wrong. I just don't know enough about what the people there mm. want to see. Mm. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I think you there are great books on grant writing and how to check boxes. And for me, I'm the type of person that's like a little bit more tries to get to a place of why do we want to do this thing? Like, why am I asking for money? Mm. And sometimes you realize at the end of that, like, and this project makes no sense. Like, why should we do this? Mm, yeah. And then other times it's like, um, you know, maybe we don't get this grant, but we believe in the project and we could find another way to get the money. So the grant writing process almost helps you like crystallize why you mm. want to do mm. what you're trying to do. Yep. And it almost, it, it like it helps you um, determine what is worth doing and not worth mm. doing even. Mm. And mm regardless of whether you get the money or not, it's like, if you get it one way, that's great. But you can also get, even if you don't get a grant, you could get a lot of clarity and there's a lot of value in that. Like it might not be dollars, but you can, it it can help set you in the right direction or make you realize that something isn't worth pursuing Mm -hmm. just by writing these grants. The reason line upon mine is worth doing, uh, and the reason it started and the reason it's still worth doing is you get to make something that you're proud of. You get to make things that you're proud of. what I would say in retrospect was it like a very traditional percussion ensemble. And I think at the time we thought we were very like adventurous and at the time adventurous for us meant like 
I don't know, like <laughs> you're going to have a commission piece on your concert and you're going to play um, Steve Reich's drumming and that's going to be like super far out, you know, and, and what's happened over the years is that we've just become like less and less percussion people and more and more composer people. Hmm. And like, I think early on we were just like percussionists are people and we feel like we need to play these great classic masterpieces because they need to be preserved and they're so good. And who else is going to play them? There's only these, you know, couple other people doing this stuff. These pieces need to be, you know, yeah, they just need to be out there as important. And, you know, now we like, the other end of that spectrum is like, we barely play music, any music that wasn't written for us for one. And two is, is like, if we don't, if we do play something by like a piece that isn't written for us, if we don't know the composer, like we're pretty unmotivated. (laughs) It's like, we've almost completely flipped in. Yeah. There is all this great music that maybe isn't getting played all the time, but it's become way more personal for us to Mm. like play music by our friends Mm. and, and the people that we've spent a lot of time making something with or struggling Mm. with something Mm. with. And because you just buy in more, like there's way more of a commitment on us, like from us when we know this person Mm. and have hung out with this person. And so obviously percussionists aren't, yeah, I mean, there are percussionists that write music, but but I think the reason this trajectory has happened is, is like the composers are the ones that are making the music. So like we're just kind of naturally migrated over to the makers in the music world. And it's not that like we don't enjoy hanging out with percussionists. It's just that like, or, or playing this great percussion music. It's just like kind of more about the relationships mm. in the building mm. and the making of the thing that is what motivates us now. Mm. Mm. And so just by nature, it's like, well, that's, that's, uh, that's how we're spending our time now. And the amazing thing about composers is like, it's just, it, it feels like it's an amazing sense of community. Like they're very supportive of one another. But the other thing is that they're like, so to me, they're so brave. Like you're, you're willing to try things. It's like, if I get on stage and play a piece and it, it doesn't go great, like, like I did my job, but maybe, you know, and I played okay, but <laughs> the piece didn't come across well, but like, that's not really on me. You know, it's like, I did what I was told to do. Yeah. Like, <laughs> obviously there's part of it. Like you need to sell a piece or whatever i'm not discounting that but like composers they just like put themselves out there with this idea that may or may not work and they they you know you sense this sort of oh there's so much like of themselves wrapped up in this thing and if it doesn't go well like ultimately it's them on the line and yet they do it time and again it's just something that i don't feel like brave enough to do myself and and i'm happy to be the middleman Mm. And that's like where I feel comfortable, but I'm just like generally very inspired by composers willingness to put themselves out there in such a brave way all Mm. the time. A couple of things come to mind um, that I'd like to ask you about. Like um, 
when you say you you really rather work with your friends and you it seems like you you kind of build your own lineup online community as it were I, I guess you make new friends all the time in that sense you you come to contact somebody because of their artistic skills not because of their social skills right uh, so you you met you met you're broadening your community in terms of uh, professional artistic relationships can you say something if it uh, it resonates with you um if your process of choosing a composer a new friend as it were has changed in the past years definitely like the the way we have gone about working with the, or, or asking the composers that we'd like to work with, if they'd like to work with us has changed. And it used to go way more sort of kind of like what you're describing esoterically, like you're thinking of everything or everyone just is kind of like this um aisle on a on a like a store or something and it's like mm -hmm. oh i just go pick the composer that i want off yeah. the the yeah. and and see if they write back to me and what's become much more important for us now is recommendations so when we talk to a composer that or, or when we've worked with a composer that we really enjoy like the whole experience from start to finish, you know, not just the piece, uh, you know, it, it's actually for me, just as a side note, the, the, the actual like end product of a, of a piece has become way less important to me than the relationship with the composer. Oh, like, interesting because, because composers, like, I don't know if you want to think about the most, efficient composer the, the composer that like if they write 10 pieces maybe five of them are great i you know it's just the 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 odds are that a composer's best piece is going to be their percussion trio or it's just like impossible it's impossible odds you know if they're <laughs> happy with it that's that's a another thing entirely but you know i used to be like well if the piece isn't good or serviceable to us then it wasn't a good collaboration and now it's just like man did you enjoy the experience? Like, did you learn something from the experience and whether you're going to play this piece a hundred more times or one more time is sort of like, it's not unimportant. It's just further down on the, on the list mm, of priorities. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, when we've enjoyed working with a composer, I think we, you know, at, at <laughs> whenever we're hanging out afterwards, it's just like, who are your friends that you think would we like, would make something good for us that we would enjoy working with. And it just, it's like, I can't think of the last piece that we didn't commission like that. You know, it's been that way for a number of years now. And it's just like, who do, who does your friend recommend? Like, I mean, which of your friends would you recommend? And now something that we've been doing recently a lot to, to kind of talk about the diversity issue is like trying to work trying to ask for those recommendations are like, do you have any female composer friends that you would recommend? And, and that's something that we've been working on for a number of years. And, and now it's been like, well, now, you know, we mostly work with white composers or that's what we've done in the mm -hmm. past. We need to do better. So it's like, which of your composer, like friends of color, like mm -hmm. would you recommend to mm -hmm. us? And, and for us, it's just, it's an education and I, and like I can sit here and try to feel badly because we've haven't done a great job with that in the past but I think what we realized last summer is it takes us five to seven years to get pieces from people on average yeah. like we're gonna start this today 
And it might be a number of years before anyone thinks we've done anything about this. But the fact of the matter is, is that like we recognize that we haven't done great and we're changing the way that we go about doing that. But it is still based on recommendations. Um, what, what stuff? What stuff are you keen on with a new project? What? what um, so, sub question: Is there stuff you would rather not do if someone proposes it, or what kind of stuff do you really uh, invite? What kind of paths do you invite yeah. a composer on when they get to your studio for the first time? Or? Oh man, that's such a lovely question to be asked. Um, I, you know, without getting too specific on things, what I would, what I'm really proud of with Lana Palmine and and particularly with Adam and Colin and just having found two people that are this way that like the three of us think very like I think we really value being asked to do things that we haven't done before mm. um, we really want to be shown new sounds um, we don't want to be the ones that are like showing composers the sounds like there's always an element of that but we want And, and like sometimes picking the perfect sound is that's our very much our job, but I'm talking about like, just, we want to, to we want to be taught things. And, right. and I think when we work with composers, we view that as our continuing education in sound is like, just teach us new things. Um, not, not just teach us new things, but we, we really, really enjoy that. And there's this level of like, challenge that I think we really appreciate. We probably only get it like once or twice a year where something feels like we can't do it right now, but there's this small glimmer of hope that we will be able to do it like by the time we have to play it. And that is like the perfect place for us because if something is like sight readable or, or, um, I don't know. It's probably a fault of ours, but we just kind of like check out a little bit. Yeah. And, and if something is impossible, then we're like, Oh man, you gotta, you gotta change this. Like, I don't, I don't think this is going to be a thing, <laughs> but if it's like new and just hard enough where like, you don't really have enough time to do it, but you can, you really want to try because you believe in it. Yeah then that's like, man, that is the best job for the next however many months you have. Right. And, and I think Adam Cohn and I all feel like the same way about that, which is so like, that's just kind of, I, I don't know, maybe it's not that rare. Um, but yeah, we just like teach us something new. That's yeah. our, that's our thing. It means you put a, a lot of trust in the composer's message to you or the composer's impulse to you which is a kind of beautiful thing it's maybe against the trend that i feel with uh, many people of our generation that they kind of they want the performer wants a more significant role than maybe what used to be the case right there's this whole negotiation issue between composer and performer today that the score isn't written in stone and uh, it's not like we surround ourselves with wagner's and beethoven's anymore and anyways the whole debate about being truthful to the score and the, the text of the music and, and everything it's, it's more fluid right now and it's a it's a whole it's a more democratic process of negotiate negotiation between the agents right um do you have any thoughts on that like w w you have a lot of competence that you bring into the to bring to the table in, in the in the uh, collaboration and uh, what i get from you now is you, you're kind of just waiting for them to pull out the goodies and you <laughs> you're not giving 
things away from your side. No, like I think when you walk into our studio, it's like, okay, things things might occur to you, but not all the composers that we work with, you know, have a chance to come here before they start writing or, you know, some of them don't, you know, can't ever really make it here. Um, I mean, we try not to make that happen, but it, but it happens. I think we, we, yeah, like we view it very much as an exchange. I think this whole idea of like, if we have a, a, a commission that you, okay, you paid the composer and then you have the due date for the piece and between you, the time you pay and the time you get the piece, like you never talk to this person. I think that for us is like sad. Uh, and we want not, not that they like check in with us about everything, but it's just nice to be a part or, Hey, can we play some sounds for you? Or, um, you know, or the composer has ideas for things they'd like to try and we're, we're happy to, to send things. I, I think just what's as interesting is for us is like that first five minutes of hearing a composer's idea for what they'd like to do for us. Like, in our brains, we're thinking, okay, how, how new and different is this going to be for us? Mm -hmm. And the more new and different it is, it's like the more exciting. And then it's not that we're just like, oh, we check out if it's like, okay, you're going to be using wood planks and metal bars. It's like, okay, like, you know, those are good instruments. (laughs) Well, we play wood planks and metal bars, but it's like, we might just like, (laughs) I think we just think of it as like, we can tell you what we've learned the last 10 years mm-hmm. for sure. And you can tell us what you're thinking. And, and when you meet in the middle and like iron out the differences, that's like, I think both parties have contributed what they um, like kind of the maximum that they can contribute to something. Right. Yeah. But if it's all one-sided I mean, sometimes I feel like this has probably happened to you, Hakon. Sometimes I feel like we straight up write the piece. Like we do right. everything but put yeah. the notes on paper. It's like, yeah. what like what else do you want us yeah. to do? Yeah. Like, and then other times it's it's man, we don't own any of the things that you want. Like, all right, yeah. let's see, let's see how we get this stuff. And that yeah. to us is like the, the spectrum we prefer. Because you did a lot of you do a lot of cool experimental stuff with electronics with weird inventions that you hardly could come up with yourself, right? This is kind of laboratorial stuff that yeah. And can you also say something about how that process is happening when you go into a piece that is totally new a new performance technique a new world of technology that you haven't never discovered like yeah tell us about that yeah um this is adam's department adam is like a tinkerer through and through he loves building things he spends his spare time building stuff and a number of years ago you know we wanted to do stuff with electronics and it felt so like such a hurdle like how do we do this? And Adam really took that on and has just like evolved so much. Like he's just gone deeper and deeper and deeper as, as the years have gone on and it's kind of this black hole for him. And he's now into all this Euro rack modular synth stuff, which, you know, he describes it as if you're into electronics, that's the logical place you will end up. Yeah. At the end of it, it's like, you will, you will get there eventually if you're into it enough and he's, he's there now. And so it's just kind of like, um, yeah, I, I think that has opened up a whole new dimension because you realize, 
you know, acoustic instruments can go so far and, mm. and we don't know everything that their acoustic instruments are capable of. Like I walked into Christian's uh, uh, studio when, when yeah. we were there, and, yeah. you know, he's got acoustic instruments that'll just blow your, your mind. But yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's like, oh man, this is just completely uncharted or, or you know, mm. kind of endless field. Yeah. And Adam is like really excited by that so. so how does that happen like um do you do you need a special budget for that everything you haven't got and there's a new piece coming on you need uh, x amount of channels x amount of electronics how do you go about doing that financing that yeah we have so we have every year we set aside part of our budget for gear and mm. electronics and as needs arise we dip into that budget it's never big enough but there's also a really amazing place in Austin and I, I, we, we probably take it for granted way too much, but there's this rental place in town mm. that just seems to have everything always. Mm. And so if we can't afford it, it's very um, easy for us to rent something for a few months to do a project. And then if we know we're going to do it again, if we know we're going to do it again straight away, we think about purchasing if we can but if we can't it's like we have access to so much from this place that's one of the reasons it's great being in austin and having it be such a music town is you have a, a, a store like this place it's called rock and roll rentals that you can just get anything you need <laughs> from cool. uh, for very cheap uh, at all times make a buck get a job start a school go to the gym enter sweepstakes Be happy. Be in love. Go into finance. Get a P.O. box. Get a passport. Get a room. Get lost. Climb rocks. Bake cookies. Fry asparagus. Roast beets. Make beets. Feel the beat. Go to the moon. Go to the store. Go to hell. Go home. Go to sleep. Wake, Wake up. Wear eye protection. Make a cake. Make a movie. Make a video game. Make a beautiful cake. Make an ugly cake. Make a interesting cake. Make a delightful tune. Make a funnel out of paper. Make a function in Python. Make a riddle out of your favorite fruit. Make a delightful cake. Make a catchy rhythm. Make a greeting card. Make a beautiful cake. Make a fancy 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 cake. Make a happy cake. Make a wedding cake. Make a sushi cake. Make me. 
Make a blueberry pie. Make a dance.